This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. New York Times broke the story late this afternoon, and this is a this is probably a worst case scenario, I would think, for the NFL and you know what for the CFL as well for football in general. Aaron Hernandez. You know who Aaron Hernandez is? Do you remember the name Aaron Hernandez? Aaron Hernandez was a guy who played college football with Tim Tebow in Florida, got drafted by the New England Patriots, was one of the best players, arguably one of the best players in the NFL, until he was arrested for murder. And he was convicted of murder, and then in April, at 27 years old, he hanged himself in his jail cell and he died. It is a truly tragic story. It is a truly tragic story that a guy who had, who really had everything, I think if I recall the number correctly, he had shortly before he was arrested, shortly before these killings, he had just signed a new $40 million contract. He had a young daughter. The guy had the world in front of him and he killed these people, got caught, got convicted and spent the rest of his life until his death, as I say, by hanging in his prison cell in jail. And it's a, it's, as I say, it's a tragic story in, in every way. It's tragic for the victims. It's tragic for his family. It's tragic for his daughter. It's tragic for his friends. The question was, can you use the word tragic when you're talking about Aaron Hernandez himself to, to, to have all these options, to have all these possibilities, to have all this talent, to have all this money, and then to squander it, to throw it away, basically to throw your life away. Is that a tragedy? I mean, if you were writing a play about it, it would be defined as a tragedy, but can you call it tragic? Cause tragic usually applies in my mind anyway, more to the victim of these things. So could you, is he, is his, is he, is what happened to him tragic? Well, before you answer that now, because I had my answer beforehand, but before you answer that question now about whether or not what happened to him is tragic, you have to understand what happened today. And what happened today is that late this afternoon, as I say, the New York Times first reported and a number of other, every other media outlet now is reporting that his brain after he had committed suicide in jail. His brain had been donated by his family to researchers who were, who have been studying chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? The brain damage that has, they believe comes from concussions, from repeated concussions, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. We'll get an expert in here to say it. I, I could say it before the show. Now I can't say it. Anyway, they had donated his brain to this lab. So these experts, these uh, coroners and everyone else could study his brain after playing high school football, college football, and then in the NFL. And what they discovered and what the news out today that is just so shocking is they say Aaron Hernandez's brain was absolutely riddled with CTE. And it was the most, this is a quote, the most severe case they had ever seen in someone of Aaron's age. He was 27. He had a brain that was the equivalent of someone in his sixties, at least. And with degenerative brain damage. And so when I said a moment ago that 
could you call Aaron Hernandez himself a tragedy in this? Well, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that complicates a story because Aaron Hernandez by the rulings of the courts, by everything we know, he was the guy who murdered these people. That that is not in question. And so if if it was your loved one who he killed, you're not showing a lot of sympathy for Aaron Hernandez. And I completely understand that. I have a very if someone were to say to me, can you drum up a lot of sympathy for Aaron Hernandez? I would not be able to drum up a lot of sympathy. He killed people. But what if, and this is the question that is, this is why I'm saying this is a worst case scenario. I think this result for the NFL and for the CFL and for football, what if his actions, what if, and we don't know, we don't know, although there is going to be lots of speculation. In fact, his family has already sued or is about to sue the NFL and the team. What if this brain damage that they will argue was caused by football? And again, we don't know that for sure. But what if this brain damage that is consistent, quite frankly, with a, on a bigger scale with a lot of other people at this lab, these people have studied of former NFL players who have donated their brains. What if this injury or this damage caused him to be a different person than the Aaron Hernandez before football? Now, again, we don't know a lot of stuff yet. We don't know if the brain injury that he had, this CTE, had anything to do with football. That would be up for the courts to decide. There are others, lots of football players that seem to have it. The Spectator Series just recently, Collision Course, seemed to find that there were a lot of cases of brain damage in football players. But we don't know if Aaron Hernandez's CTE was caused by football. We only are thinking, hmm, it sounds like it probably could have. We don't know if it was caused before he got to the NFL. We don't know anything about this, but we do have a lot of people now, and I can assure you that the case that is going to be presented, if they are allowed to present it, is going to say Aaron Hernandez was turned into a killer by football. That's very simplistic, but that's the case that's going to be made if they're allowed to make it, if they are allowed to take this case to court. Aaron Hernandez, football broke Aaron Hernandez's brain and made him do things he would otherwise never have done. It damaged him so badly that he became a guy who was different from the original person and did these things. That will be the argument, I'm sure, that is going to be made. Is that provable? I don't know how you prove that. I Honestly, I, I unless they have brain scans from prior to his days playing high school football, I have no idea how you would prove that. And even if they go to court, which they are trying to, and they've sued, as I say, or are about to sue the NFL and the New England Patriots, which was his former team, even if those two entities are put on the stand as defendants, well, do you not think that their argument is going to be, he he must have had this from college and high school. This must have been when that happened because it didn't happen with us. This is going to be very, very difficult, I would think to make this case. Nonetheless, it seems to me as I read this today, this was the worst possible scenario, the worst case scenario for professional and other kinds of football. 
Because even if now the NFL and the New England Patriots go to court and are able to win this case and not be found to have caused this injury, many people who have been following this story, many people who have been following this whole CTE discussion along the way have made up their mind that football is behind this. And if the Patriots and if the NFL were able to prove their case, there are people who will now say, well, wait a second, if they didn't, if he didn't get it there, does that mean he got this amount of damage in university or in high school football? And you understand where I'm going. The, the Patriots in the NFL, if they win this case and don't have to pay anything, they'll win in that regard. But how many parents, and we talked about this last couple of weeks ago when Steve Buse, who wrote that article, that series in The Spectator, when he was on here. And he used a great analogy. He said it's the, the source is going to be choked out. And I'm starting to think that he is bang on with this one. If you're a parent and you're hearing about this and the NFL and the Patriots surely are going to argue that it wasn't them, I would expect that's, I mean, what other defense are they going to offer? But they're going to say it wasn't us. What parent is now reading this or listening to this story saying, I'm really feeling very comfortable putting my kids into football. And again, we don't even know if this injuries or these injuries were caused by football, but that's the perception that's out there right now for sure. And this is going to be desperately bad for football. But furthermore, so when I, when I hear this story, my reaction then says, oh, well, you know what? Maybe there is a bit of a tragedy. Maybe there is a bit of a tragic element in Aaron Hernandez's life. Maybe he is somehow in some way a victim as well. But then I go to the third point. I swing back. The pendulum swings back one more time and I say, wait a second. And we've talked to lots of players about this on this show. Nobody put a gun to Aaron Hernandez's head and said, you must play football. He wanted to play football. He chose to play football. He was really good at football. Football provided him a way to become famous and rich and all those other things. But it was his choice to play football. It was entirely his choice. If you drive drunk and kill somebody, even if they step out in front of your car, even if even if you're driving along and suddenly they emerge from the sidewalk and step out and you hit them, they may have done something wrong. There may be extenuating circumstances, but nobody forced that drink down your throat. You are still responsible because you chose to take that action that in some way, in a large way, contributed to that situation. Well, is, this, is the same thing not at play here? The guys who play football, whether football causes this or not, and that is still... The science seems to argue yes, but there's still work to be done. But the science certainly seems to suggest yes, that's the case. I'm not a scientist. I don't study brains. But the science seems to be leaning that way. But even if this is the case, this, if the science says that this causes your injuries and you still choose to play, which a lot of guys do, we've had Mike Morreale on here. We've had Rob Hitchcock on here. We've had other players on here. And if you were listening that those nights, you'll remember what all of them said to a man, to a man, 
they said if they were sitting down at a desk with the general manager, the coach, and the contract to play professional football was laid in front of them, and before they signed that contract, they were told there is a very good chance that if you play professional football, you could have permanent life-affecting injuries. Now, would you like to sign it? They said almost everybody they know in the locker room that they ever played with would say, yes, I'd like to play. Yes, I want to play still. So, while there may be an element, it sounds like anyway, there may be, from this story with Aaron Hernandez, there may be an element of him being in some way, if this is true and if this is caused by football, there may be an element of this, of him being a bit of a victim. He still chose to be in the activity that would have, by that definition, made him injured, which made him the victim. So ultimately, again, I go back to my point. It's still the choice of the athlete. And if you damage yourself in a sport that you are willingly choosing to play and the injury that you suffer is not way out of the bounds of what is reasonable within that sport, it's on you. And when I say reasonably within, if you're playing hockey, you know that it's reasonable that a guy could slam you into the boards. You know it's re- and you could break whatever. You know that it's reasonable that a, sh- a slap shot could hit you in the mouth and you could lose all your teeth and break your jaw. You don't expect it, but you know that that's a risk you're going to take when you step on the ice. You know you could be hit with a high stick. You even know that you could be slashed by someone. That's a penalty, but it's still within the general confines of what is accepted risk that you are taking when you step on the ice. I know somebody could slash me. I know I could get a wrist broken by a slash. Now, what you don't expect is that you are standing there and someone walks up to you and puts their hands on the stick like a baseball bat and swings like a baseball bat and clobbers you in the face and severely injures you. That is beyond the bounds of what you have accepted as acceptable risk when you step on the ice. Well, same with football. But in this case, I'm finding it very hard even reading this story. And it's sad. It's sad that a 27-year-old would have this kind of brain injury. But I'm finding it very hard to still, after you go through the whole thing, to say Aaron Hernandez is a victim here of something. He may be the unfortunate recipient of injuries that left him in a depleted state, which sounds very legal. I'm not trying to be legal about this. He may be a guy who suffered injuries, but he chose to play the sport that led to those injuries. Nobody forced him to do that. And if he suffered concussions, I was trying today to find out how many concussions he reported, and I couldn't find reports of Aaron Hernandez reporting concussions. If he got dinged up, if he saw stars, all those things, and didn't tell people, what are they supposed to do? I'm not defending the league. I'm not, but I, there were a few people today after this came out saying, wow, you know what? This is a, this is a, this is a story that may make Aaron Hernandez very, look like a victim, look like a sympathetic character. He still chose to play the game that caused, potentially caused the damage that led to the outcome. It's hard to say that it's not his responsibility. And it's hard to say that I, feel now completely badly for Aaron Hernandez in the big picture. It's also hard to say that in any way 
this is good news for professional football because of all the people who are believing that football now caused these injuries and would say, you know what, A, I don't really enjoy watching smashing faces anymore, so I'm not going to watch, and B, if I have kids, I'm not going to let them into the game, which as Steve Bue said, that will choke off the supply and eventually severely impact the quality of the players who are going to be in the game. Anyway, you're going to be hearing all kinds, I'm expecting, about Aaron Hernandez in the days ahead. I wanted to, uh, there's the background anyway. You can decide. You decide whether you think he's a sympathetic character or not. It's up to you. I mean, everyone's going to have an opinion. And everyone's opinion may be different. Tell me yours. Radley at 900CHML.com. Send me a note if you have a thought on this one. Whether you think he's a victim, sympathetic, tragic, or this makes no difference because whatever happened, he chose to get into the sport and whatever happened to him and whatever it caused may have caused him to do down the road, eh, that was him. That's on him. Let me know. Radley at 900CHML.com. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I want to get him on here. Um, Lee Munn joins me now. Lee, how are you tonight? Very good. How are you doing? I'm excellent. I was going, as I say, I was, I've been on your website before, but I'm going through a lot of these paintings you do, and I, I'm, I'm always blown away by how somebody can translate what they see through their hands and come up with something that is that incredibly lifelike. And I'm trying to decide, though, is that a compliment to you? I think so. I think it always depends on the choices of, of uh, colors and everything you do. A lot of times when I'm working off of pieces, I will be doing uh, strong different adjustments to make uh, things more strong and colorful uh, and finding probably the right kind of pictures that would be, uh, I guess, an eye catcher for people. Because the reason I ask you that, and it may sound like a strange question, is when there was a Ken Danby exhibit at the uh, Art Gallery of Hamilton mm-hmm. in the winter, I was reading a few reviews, and apparently some people think that being so realistic or being very able to translate real life isn't necessarily the most wonderful art. And I'm looking going, I'm looking at your stuff and I'm, I'm thinking it's fantastic. I, I don't quite understand that, but <laughs> I don't, I don't understand then. For, I, I'm not sure for an artist if saying, well, does you everybody are, know Ken Danby's name? Well, they sure do. I guess so. So then he's probably succeeded. Uh, you know, Norman Rockwell, people like that. Yes. Yes. Uh, they've all done very well and, People in Hamilton like Robert Ross and Doug McBean, uh, Susan Outlaw, they're all very successful people. I've always thought that the people who would say that it's not really great when it's that realistic are those who actually can't do it. <laughs> so so I like the abstract stuff because I can do that. Give me some finger paints and a piece of paper. I'm good. Let me go. Well, I mean, abstract is, is uh, another, uh, another version, and then if you're working on it with uh, trying to do your styles and catching whatever it is, sometimes it can be just as, if not even harder, than sometimes doing an original. Sometimes it can be as fun as closing your eyes and letting your paint go. Well, I've done that before. <laughs> but the problem was I was trying to do a wall at that point, and it landed on the carpet when I closed my eyes and let the paint go. It's a different <laughs> kind of thing. How do you define, or de- sorry, how do you describe, I guess is a better word, what, what do you describe yourself as an artist when someone asks you, what do you do? What, what's your definition of who you are as an artist? Uh, for myself, I just, I love realism. I love uh, up north. I love city landscapes. So if you want to say a landscape artist, uh, it's a lot of times doing pieces where you're just going around and, and finding the right color. A lot of times what sunshine can bring and uh, and bringing out the colors, uh, that's what I like. I'm, 
I like doing something that I think somebody would proudly hang on their wall compared to some things where it's just a little more, you know, a, a picture catches you and it means something to you, but to many people else, they'd be like, well, why would I want that? <laughs> so do you walk around everywhere with a camera phone or no, a, f- a camera or something? No, uh, uh, I'll be heading up north in another uh, week and a half and, and then I will be doing, uh, uh probably, uh, a lot of photography, waking up in the morning, getting up at the cottage before the sun rises and and staying out till sunsets, going to different places to get different things, and a lot of times that's it. Sometimes it's me just waking up in the morning, looking out the window and, and running over to Sam Lawrence Park and catching a few things of, uh, of views over the city. It's uh, nice being... <laughs> Nice being here in Hamilton to have the view of the city. And yeah, for sure. Well, I, and you know, some of the stuff you have done, you mentioned it is urban. It's not all landscape. It's not all nature, I guess. But it, I mean, it's it, it's a variety of stuff. Have you always painted, Lee? Have you always been into this? Yeah, I got into it when I was probably in my uh, early teens um, and enjoyed the art and and stayed with it. Went to art college. Went to Dundas Valley and and then uh, George Brown and Sheridan. Uh, got into the arts, but of course, once you were done that, uh, advertising was where the money was. Mm. And I worked in, in that for probably about a 20, 25 year period of always doing advertising, doing graphics. And over the last probably five to 10 years, it's, it's brought itself back into the art again, which is fun. How do you, or when do you realize when you're a young man that you're actually good at this though? Because you don't, well, really? (laughs) You, you, you never realize, I mean, if it's something uh, you enjoy doing, that's the most important first. And then probably once your other people come up and say, you know, compliments always help. But you never know when that's just somebody saying, oh, wow, you're really smart. Yeah, compliments from your mother don't count because <laughs> exactly. she's lying. It's on the fridge. No, honestly, Lee, it's on the fridge. It's great. That that doesn't count. But, I, I mean, is that what did it for you when people started, when other people started saying, hey, this is really good? Yeah, I mean, it was something that when you're in high school and everything and you enjoy doing that kind of work, it, it uh, I liked numbers and I liked painting, and it was either the choice of being a, uh, getting into finance or, or getting into, I wanted to be a broker or I wanted to be an artist. It was one of the two. And, uh, well, I guess I chose the wrong, but... <laughs> yeah, you chose the poor man's version of it, I'll yeah. tell you. Well, as you know, I'm not a starving artist, so... That's true, yeah. (laughs) I I make no comment on that one. None of us can make comments on that right now. The amazing thing to me about this, and if people read the story and read about you, um, you've got all this talent, you've got all this ability, you're moving along, it's going well. You were, though, dealing with a pretty severe health issue while this was happening. Yeah, I I grew up with it when I... uh was in my younger teens, uh, the seizures started to come. Uh, you had epilepsy. Epilepsy. Yep. And uh, this happened probably from, uh, uh, I guess, a mid-childhood. And, and I got used to it in high school. You know, people joke around. You kind of had to play with it or else feel uncomfortable. So I always rode with it. And, well, my last name being Mun, I stuck with my nickname being Space Mun. <laughs> So that, that uh, you know, I had my seizures, that was Space Mun. Uh, and from that point on, it was, uh, I got lucky enough that it kind of faded away in my probably later teens. And I drove for a few years and everything was good. And unfortunately, one day uh, I had a seizure and had to stop driving. 
and I haven't I hadn't driven for probably about 20 plus years and when I had the opportunity of a brain surgery uh, about 10 years ago uh, everything went very successful it was uh, a period of time being in Kitchener but or excuse me London uh, but uh, everything went very well but we, but there's a risk whenever they crack open your head and start yes. poking around in your brain did you did well, the thought cross your mind that of course the thought crossed my mind uh, I first had just wires on the skull they said they put wires on your skull and read it uh, I had to go back to the hospital seven months later they said they weren't able to read it enough we have to put the wires on your brain so then they had to drill six holes in my skull to put the wires literally on my brain to read it. And then I had to stay in the hospital again for about another two months while they read my seizures. And from that point, um, everything was read that it was a part of the brain that could be removed without me losing any body movements or intelligence. <laughs> no joke. Well, <laughs> but but that know, that would be no, but that would be the if it was me. Not only do I would I be fearful of losing, as you say, like you know that something goes wrong, the ability to speak, or they end up with mm-hmm. you know the stroke. But you're a talented artist, and that's a huge part of you. And the thought that maybe something could be that that could go away. I don't know how that would work, but that that could disappear somehow would be terrifying to me. I mean, there was there was a chance of that, but it was probably something that was enough of an irritation of life. Uh, I lived with my wife at the time. Uh, her not being my wife at that time, I didn't want to be married because uh, what happens if the stage went worse? Uh, and she was stuck with me. Hmm. Uh, so when the surgery was successful and everything, uh, we booked our day and have been happily married for 10 years since then. When the uh, when the surgery was done and you had been able to recover enough, was one of the first things you did to go and find out if you could still paint? Uh, that was what I did for when I, I, I started getting back into it strongly when I was in the hospital for the two months while they were having wires in my brain and, and waiting for me to have a seizure. <laughs> oh. uh, and, and so I had nothing to do but sit in a room with six or eight epi- other epileptics while they were having their brains read and waiting for each other to have seizures. So it was either you have bets on who's next or you read a book or do something. Well, I started painting again. And, and, and once, though, once the surgery was done... Mm-hmm. That, I- that brought me back and... I took a, a buyout from when I worked uh, at Brabant, uh, which is Hamilton Community News now, uh, and then had that period of time that I could have the surgery. And when I had that done, I started my own advertising company called Arts and Ads, and I worked with other newspapers, the Bay Observer, and other pieces like that, and stayed in the advertising. But it's slowly, bit by bit, moved from advertising actually into the art, which was a nice thing. It is, uh, it's it's a terrific thing that this worked out as well as it did, obviously, but now that you're back doing this, and, you, and you've and you been prolific, uh, I mean, the, the number of paintings you've done is, is enormous, but one of the things that I find so interesting about this, and I've never heard of any other artist who's done this, is you actually... Well, explain your connection between your paintings and music or of a song. Oh, it, it's it's almost a superstition or something. When I started painting, I always had music on. And one time I had it on for a few hours and I switched from whatever band I had on to another band. 
and the painting went just, I can't say those words <laughs> on the radio. So I went back and put the other one on and fixed my painting. And then it just became a ritual for me. And over a period of time, it got to the point of me naming the painting, because it's so hard. You know, you paint a tree every time, and you say, brown tree, red tree, <laughs> orange tree. Yeah, but I can find a line in a song that I listened to that band, and like the last, one of the last paintings, uh, I did a sunset of, of everything, and I was listening to John K. Sampson from the Weaker Thins, and his line was, a line of late afternoon sun. Well, a line of late afternoon sun is better than sun go down. Yeah, that yeah. is true. Well, I've actually got one of yours pulled up on a website now, and this is a, a, a beautiful uh, painting of reflecting water with some lily pads and the clouds above it. And it's, mm-hmm. I've seen clouds from both sides now, which of course is Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that, and that's as soon as I saw it, I went, Oh, okay. That reminded me actually of, of I knew about this, but <laughs> it's a really, I mean, is, does the music, the music isn't meant to be the thing that determines what you do. It's just no, a, but it sure is fun. What? <laughs> and if you choose your own music, well then it just, uh, it's always good if I have the music blaring, my wife knows, oh, okay, that little bugger's going to be in there. Whoops, I don't even know if that's Yeah, that's okay. It's going to be in there for the next four hours, six hours, ten hours. Well, it's his time. The music's on. Lee, we got to let you go in a second here, but when do you paint? Because you do he, you do work at The Spectator, for, for people yeah. who don't know. You work laying out pages and doing that, but that's a full shift. And then mm-hmm. what, do you just go home and go into your studio yeah. then and paint all night? Like, yeah. do you ever sleep anymore? Uh, the, the spec is great with me. Uh, I still have usually three days a week, and, and sometimes I can make it more if, uh, if I have some some holidays, stat holidays, booked holidays. And, well, the truth is, yes, I do work seven days a week usually. The days that are off are pink days, and I try and still always do about 30 hours a week to 40 hours a week of wow. painting. Wow. Uh, and that, along with working, it, it it's always good. Uh, what Previous to working at the spec, I... I had my advertising company, but I also worked for the Ottawa Citizen. So I went from doing the Bay Observer, which was a client of mine, to doing whatever other clients I had, to then doing the Ottawa Citizen. So I was used to 16-hour days. And are people, and obviously I'm taking note, and a lot of other people, but publicly, are, is, it, is it catching, is there traction now happening that people are taking note in town of your work? I, I think it's uh, catching more. I think when I got elected into the SCA, the Society of Canadian Artists, uh, which they elect 10 people a year across Canada, it's, uh, that was an honor, and I think the name got a little more known that some people, uh, some other studios and everything recognized, oh, this person's a member of SCA. Uh, and then in doing so, uh, Stockyards Gallery had contacted me on representing me for a show in Toronto. And when it was, uh, their place is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, it's connected to the Rebarn, which uh, does really cool reclaimed woods inside. Um, and it's just on DuPont. And like DuPont is a really cool area of town. It's kind of like what James Street is for Hamilton. It's really uh, picking up and becoming the cool area of, of an area of Toronto like we are for Hamilton, mm-hmm. like James Street is for Hamilton. And when she said she would like uh, for myself to be with somebody else in a show, I'd given a few recommendations of names, and one person I strongly recommended for was Clarence Porter, 
who is uh, also a Hamilton artist, that is a strong pastel artist, and he's, his work is just phenomenal. And when she said, oh, I'd love to have his pieces, and Clarence joined with me, um, that's when we got the idea of let's, let's promote Hamilton for Toronto. So we made, named the show The Bihamento, which Bihamento show was by to ham in Toronto. Okay. Bihamento. All right. I thought it was something you put in an olive, that, but that's a pimento. So you had me confused for a second. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I would love to keep chatting. This is it, it is great, great work. Um, the website is Lemon L E E M U N N, just like it sounds. dot com. Lots of Lee's paintings are there. Uh, I'm assuming people could order prints if they like it off there. Correct? Yeah, I do. I do make uh, giclés of some that aren't uh, done specifically for people. Uh, but if most of the paintings I do, I usually have available giclés for a limited amount of those. And uh, others, I have originals. Well, on my site, they say if it's sold or not, and if it's sold, well, then usually only a giclé is available. It is uh, it is remarkable work. If you enjoy art, if you like looking at, at landscape and outdoor and nature and those kind of things, uh, definitely go take a look. Lee Mun, L-E-E-M-U-N-N dot com. Uh, Lee, thanks for doing this yep. tonight. Really appreciate it. And the show is on from uh, September 23rd to October 21st. Where? And that's at the Stockyards Gallery, which is in Toronto on... Uh, just off of Kiel um, on DuPont. Perfect. Uh, 1611 DuPont. 1611 DuPont. If you want to see it live, you can see it again online. Uh, Lee, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you this. very much. Have a great day. Bye. That is, uh, you know, we have a lot of great musicians in this city. We have a lot of great artists in this city. Sometimes we know about them. Sometimes it takes a little work to get people to know about them. Lee is one of those people you really should be at least aware of, especially if you if you like art on your wall other than simply dogs playing poker that's cool too if you want to have the dogs playing poker poster but this is something different if you want to go check it out leemun.com you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 chml you may remember back in 2000 and i believe it was 10 the university of waterloo's football team got themselves got itself into a lot of trouble there was a steroid scandal and a bunch of players were Apparently had tested positive. Anyway, uh, the school, for all intents and purposes, the, the, the football team got the death penalty. It was wiped right out. And when it restarted, well, you can imagine when you restart a football program with that many people that you need involved and coaches and everything else, it didn't go quite so well. 2011, the school shows up with a clean slate, able to start again. But, um, yeah, it was a mess. It was a mess. Since 2011, from 2011, 2012, 2014, 15, and 16, up till the end of last year, after returning from this suspension, the team went 4 and 44. 4 and 44. They scored a total in those years, in those six years, of 541 points while giving up 2,341. That's a lot. It's a huge disparity. Two years ago, just by explanation. Those 541 points, two years ago, Western almost scored that many points in one year, what Waterloo scored in six years. It was, as they say, a mess. So, prior to this year, longtime McMaster, Marauder, basketball and football player, and then 
coach, offensive coordinator. He was the offensive coordinator of the Vanier Cup winning team and the two other teams that went to the Vanier Cup, John Behe. And Ryan Loveday, who was another coach from the McMaster program, left to go to Waterloo. They were joined by former Hamilton Tiger Cat, Darrell Adams, who was the defensive coordinator. He was there. Former Tiger Cat, Joaquin Bradley, joined the staff this year. Another Hamilton native, Brendan Conway, was already there as the special teams coach. Well, today, today, the team that went 4-44 and for the past six years, and basically you knew almost every week when they took the field they were going to lose. Today, that team is 4-0. and They're averaging 45 points a game. And this week, for the first time in over a decade, they have landed in the national top 10 rankings. Uh, it is just a great story, especially because there are so much Hamilton pieces involved in this. We love that kind of stuff. John Behe, who is one of those guys who went there and is now part of this, joins me now. John, congratulations. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the secret to turning around a team like this, obviously, was just taking a whole bunch of people from Hamilton there, right? <laughs> That's right. Hey, I, I still live in Hamilton, so uh, all the credit to City Hamilton is great. <laughs> Let's be honest, though. When you left McMaster in the off season at the end of last year and you decided to join Waterloo, there is absolutely zero chance if I was going to hook you up to a lie detector machine, there is zero mm-hmm. chance you thought you would be 4-0 and and ranked in the national top 10 at this point. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's totally unfair to say. I mean, I think we had realistic goals about winning a couple of games, but um, to say that we'd be 4-0, uh, we would have got people looking at us like we were crazy. And I think internally, uh, that wasn't necessarily the expectation either. So, um we're thrilled with where we're at, but we realize we got a long way to go this season. Yeah, I probably shouldn't make a joke about peeing in a cup about making you do that at Waterloo. That would be a bad joke for them. But um, but no, I mean, people would have thought you were nuts if they if you had said we're going to start 4-0. And, and not only that, but we're going to score all these points because Waterloo never scored any points for the last six years. Yeah, and I mean, I can't speak to how it was here before I got here, but certainly we've been fortunate to put a lot of points up and get some great contributions from our special teams. And so... I mean, we're like I said, we're thrilled with where we're at right now, but we're only halfway through uh, this season, so we got a lot. We got a long road to go, and a real tough challenge this weekend as well. Well, for sure, and you're playing Laurier, that is the defending Yates Cup champion. Um, but I was talking to one of your players today, another Hamilton guy. As it turns out, you got a bunch of Hamilton players who are actually some of the best players on the team. Uh, Jesse Gibson, who's a tackle, um, and he he admitted that you know what when. The last couple of years, he knew that when teams would play, when they had Waterloo on the schedule, a lot of people figured that when they were going there or when Waterloo was coming to their place, it was it was a win. They just, that was the way. And, and John, that's not a crazy thing for them to have thought. I'm sure when you were at Mac, if you were, again, being very honest, when you, with McMaster, played against Waterloo, you expected that was going to be a win. Yeah, I think we had we had different goals for the weeks that we would play this program in terms of getting some younger guys, some OUA game experience, um, you know, and making sure that we cleaned up some of the stuff that maybe had been lingering. And I mean, were we overly worried about losing the game? No, I don't think we were. Uh, but we still needed to stress to our student athletes that it was it was a competitive OUA game, and there are there were and are a lot of good football players up here. Uh, they just didn't have, you know, the kind of depth that they needed to compete in and out on special teams and throughout the course of a 60-minute game. And 
I think that's the biggest difference now is Coach Bertoy has done a, a really good job since he got here three years ago of getting uh, getting depth so that you know our starters don't have to be on every special team and getting worn down. And the kids that were young two years ago are now in their third year and have a ton of experience playing you know full football games. So uh, like I, you know you and I talked the other day, full credit goes to Coach Bertoy and what he's the vision he had when he took this program over. But the fact that for two straight years they didn't have a win. So there's guys there who are into their third year now at Waterloo who, starting this year, had never actually experienced a university win. Even against the weaker teams in Ontario, they had not experienced a win. So at the start of this year, you guys played Windsor in your first game of the year. When you guys win that game, and not only did you win, I mean, you you punished them. You put up 54 points, I think, is the right number. When you guys win that game, that must have been somewhere between huge relief for these guys, enormous excitement, but just an absolutely amazing feeling for these guys who have been grinding away at it as the punchline for a lot of the time. And now, finally, they finally got on the in the winning column. You know what? Uh, I was actually surprised at how matter-of-fact some of the players felt after the game. They, they've been working extremely hard, the third-year guys, for two years. And to them, this was just something that was bound to happen eventually. We have a lot of rookies in the lineup still this year, and this program has recruited a lot of players off top high school programs in Ontario. And so their expectation is that we're going to win. They don't know anything but winning from those traditional high school powerhouse programs. Uh, so I thought it would, you know, as an outsider coming in, a new, you know, the new guy, I thought that the locker room would be a lot more joyous. And other than Coach Bertoya getting a quick Gatorade shower for his first uh, win as a head coach, the room was sort of, hey, this is, what's, this is what the new normal is going to be. And I was impressed by that, the maturity that some of these kids uh, you know, that hadn't experienced it could see the bigger picture, that this is just the end game to the, all the hard work that they've put in. And uh, that didn't produce a letdown the next week. So... You know, I I would have thought like you did. There would have been, you know, total euphoria in the locker room, but it was more business-like than anything else. All right, so the next week you get York, and they're not one of the stronger teams. Then University of Toronto. But then last week, and I can tell you, I was covering the McMaster game. We're up in the press box. We're watching Mac, but everyone's asking, what's happening with Waterloo? Because it's now become this story around the province. Yeah. Waterloo was 3-0. Yeah. Waterloo, that's more games than you'd won in like four years. And now you're playing Carlton, and Carlton, yeah, they lost some guys to the CFL last year into graduation, but Carlton is still a good team, and I would bet you that most people figure, oh, that was nice that Waterloo got their three wins, and good for them. Now they'll go on a five-game losing streak to wrap up the season, but at least they got something to build on. And you guys beat Carlton. That had to be now a different reaction than if the guys were calm, cool, and collected at the end of the first game. I, there's got to be some kind of reaction when you beat a team that nobody expected you guys to beat. Yeah, I, I do think that the sideline or locker room post-game, you know, on the field post-game, after Carlton was as excited as I've seen some of these student-athletes, uh, they, they realized, okay, we're on the road at Carlton, at their homecoming and down 20 at half, that was a special win. And so uh, that was as excited and uh, happy, joyous as I've seen um, the group in our locker room. And it was really cool to see because I think winning against Windsor and piling up a ton of points, winning that way or beating York is one thing, but 
to win that way and get that experience, it's only going to help this program moving forward as well into the future uh, upcoming years. Well, as a coach too, I mean, you know, it seems like you're, you just were playing at McMaster. You don't seem like the elder statesman, but I mean, you are now <laughs> a coach and you've been doing this for a while and you're not, you know, brother age with the guys who are playing. You may not be quite the age of their father, but you're old enough to have been through some stuff. There's got to be a great amount of joy to be able to stand back and see those reactions from these guys as well as a coach. A hundred percent. I am, I am really blown away by, you know, how hard these kids are working uh, I'm really proud to have contributed even a little bit to the success and that we're having this year. And just to see that hard work that I think they're putting in pay off with, with wins is it's been really fun to be a part of really cool. Something that I'll, you know, something that I'll always remember, um, is just the fact that these kids have put the hard work in and turned this program around where, you know, two years ago, three years ago now, when Coach Bertoia was got hired or before he got hired, people were wondering outside of these walls if the program was even going to exist in five years. And so for them to commit to play here and then work hard to turn it around, uh, it's been pretty neat to be a part of. And I'm I'm really happy uh, with how it's gone so far for me personally. Well, and you, you credit the coach and you credit the players, but for all those Hamilton guys, and again, there's five or six of you, even on the coaching staff, there has to be also a level of self-satisfaction, I guess is the right way of saying it, that you know what? Well, yeah, we're proving that we're actually pretty good coaches too. There has well, to be is, some of that. This, this is a really, really good staff. I mean, this there's a lot of, there's a lot of Waterloo alum that Coach Bertoia wanted to hire a lot of uh, guys that went here and played here because there's a level of care that you get from pl- coaching at your alma mater. And then, you know, kind of plucked a few other guys like myself and Coach Loveday and uh, Coach DA from Carleton a couple years ago and Joaquin. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been pretty cool to be a part of. And as a staff, I mean, I think we've got a pretty tight group and, um, there are a lot of good football coaches on the staff. And I mean, all that translates, uh, you know, with, with the, to the players and we've got a bunch of different personalities, which I think helps as well. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been good and it's great. We've got a great rapport in this, in the staff room. And uh, I think the players can feed off that and feel that also. You guys have Laurier this weekend. Laurier, as I say, is the defending Ontario champions. They've still got a very good team. Most people, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know, most people think you guys will probably lose this week. Uh, I'm not going to make a prediction anymore because I think I've been <laughs> wrong four times now. But if you guys did lose this week, and, I, and it is based on what's already happened and considering who you're playing against, does that suddenly burst the bubble or is that just part of playing football? Well, I, I don't think, you know, you asked if in, my, in our wildest dreams were we going to be four and oh well maybe not but certainly no one thinks thought or thinks that we're going to go eight and oh so you know everyone loses occasionally some of the better programs in the province have already lost the game as well and so you know we're going to have to if, if that's the case and i would say that we are still underdogs this weekend without question and um for all the you know the credit we're getting in terms of it's be it's a really good story and it's it's really cool and i, I appreciate it and like it we're still the underdogs I and mean, this is a veteran Laurier team on both sides of the ball and you're like you said they're the defending chance so if for whatever reason we drop this we do need to bounce back quick because we've got a winnable game at home next week against Guelph uh so you know if that's the way it goes then um 
we've got to bounce back Sunday morning and get right back to work, uh, you know, because the season, like I said, we got four games left and we've the, the playoffs are in picture now. This is not an unrealistic thing right now for us to think that. Wow. I mean, with one more win, we're in for sure. You know, five and three does not miss the playoffs in the OUA. So, you know, that's got to be the end game. And Coach Bertoy's kind of motto all off season is win the day. So uh, if we lose that day, then back Sunday, we got to get to work and win that day so that next weekend we get that fifth win and ensure ourselves a playoff spot. Have you been hearing from people around the province? Surely people have been reaching out yeah. going, way to go, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of... A lot of uh, players that I used to coach uh, at McMaster, guys I used to work with, just coaches across the province, and then just friends that I didn't think followed OUA football. Hmm. Uh, people that have kind of seen it, seen the stories on Twitter or social media and reached out and say, hey, this is pretty cool. Keep up the good work kind of stuff. And that's always encouraging too, but from a bigger picture standpoint, the more competitive teams we have in the OUA, raising the level of competition across the board, the better. People aren't going to tune in to see Waterloo or other schools get crushed every week. So, you know, we need a 8, 9, 10 team. It would be great if all 11 could be super competitive. And so um, from that standpoint and the public, you know, all the publicity we're getting, it's only doing great things uh, for the OUA, for youth sports across the country, uh, just to raise our awareness and the level. Because this is really high-quality entertainment. You know, you can get a t- $10 ticket and go watch – some really high-level football all across the province, not just at Waterloo. Before I let you go, um, you guys don't, and this is the first year in forever that I can recall, you guys don't have Mac on the schedule this year. This year of all years, are you kind of thinking, man, I wish we had Mac. I wish we would play against that school that I used to go to and work for. <laughs> well, first off, I don't want to play them because their defense is super good. <laughs> and so I don't want to have to game plan against that defense. But secondly, to, and to be candid, is, There'd be a lot of emotions for me having to play them. So, frankly, I'm kind of happy that we weren't on the schedule uh, just because there would be a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, kind of emotions going on. And uh, at the end of the day, if we do end up playing them in the playoffs, I mean, we're going to play to win and it's good put that stuff aside. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we don't have them. Just give me a year buffer, you know, selfishly, give me a year of a buffer to kind of get my footing here and, uh, and then see what next year holds and go from there. John Behe, uh, now with University of Waterloo. Really appreciate the time, John. Congratulations on everything, and good luck this weekend. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate This is, uh, it is, you know what, it really is one of the great stories. Again, even if you don't follow Canadian or Ontario University football, and many people don't, I, that's fine, I get that. But you ha- I hope we got the point across. Waterloo has been a team that has been awful. And I'm not exaggerating, I'm not being mean. They have just been horrible since they came back from their suspension. And it's at the point now where their success is actually being cheered for by people at other schools. Not when they're playing them. They're not wanting Waterloo to beat them. I'm not saying that. But around the province, people are now rooting for Waterloo, even those who wouldn't necessarily want another team to win. Because it's just such a great story that they've been so bad, so horrible for so long, and suddenly, with a bunch of Hamilton guys leading the way, they are turning it around and looking good. It's just a nice story for a bunch of guys, especially the Hamilton guys who are on the team, who have been playing there for two or three years, finally getting some wins. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.